Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're at the book of Numbers, chapter 8. We are coming out of Parshat Naso, and we've got this long list of all of the chieftains that we saw offering their gifts at the Mishkan. Each was supposed to bring the same thing, their silver bowl and a silver basin uh, with, filled with flour uh, and oil for the Mishkan. So we're immediately, we're coming immediately after this dedication by each of the leaders, by each Nasi uh, of the tribe. And we worked with that word a lot last week, right? That Shoresh, Nun, Sin, Aleph, uh, to lift up, to raise. And we talked a lot about the ways that that's used in the Parsha. Now we come to Parshat Beha'alotcha. Or who's reading? Rita? Okay. In turn. Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you mount the lamps, let the seven lamps give light at the front of the lampstand. Aaron did so. He mounted the lamps at the front of the lampstand, lampstand as Adonai had commanded Moses. Now this is how the lampstand was made. It was hammered, it was hammered work of gold hammered from base to pedal, according to the pattern that Adonai had shown Moses. So was the lampstand made. Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the Israelites and purify them. This is what you shall do to purify them. Sprinkle on them water of purification and let them go and let them go over their whole body with a razor, wash their clothes, thus shall they be purified. Let them take a bull of the herd, and with it a meal offering of choice flour with oil mixed in, and you take a second bull of the herd for purgation offering. You shall bring the Levites forward before the tent of meeting, assemble the Israelite community leadership, and bring the Levites forward before Adonai. Let the Israelites lay their hands upon the Levites and let Aaron designate the Levites before Adonai as an elevation offering from the Israelites that they, that they may perform the service of Adonai. The okay. Levites shall now lay their hands upon the heads of the bulls. One shall be offered to Adonai as a purgation offering and the other as a burnt offering to make expiation for the Levites. Okay. We're getting this commandment to Moshe, who's supposed to talk to Aaron, and talk to him about the menorah. Then we get the cleansing of the Levites, and we are going to distinguish between what happens to the Levites and what happens to the priests, right? So what happens for the Levim that we see here is a ritual of cleansing, a ritual of purification. It is not consecration. Right? So this is different than what happens for the priests. The Levites are only cleansed. That is the only thing that happens to them so that they are in a state of ritual purity. They are not consecrated. So there's no anointing oil. 
So that is only for the Kohanim, only for the priests. So lest we think the same thing is going on here as happens for the priest, it's a, it's a different idea. The priests also have to be purified, but that's all that happens to the Levim, because they are not going to go into the Mishkan. Only the Kohanim, only the priests can go into the Mishkan. The Levites are going to serve to do, as we said last week, porterage. Right? They're going to carry, they're going to break down, carry, and erect the Mishkan. That's their job. That's their service. When they are from the ages of what to what? 30, 30. 30 to 50. Exactly. So what, from 30 to 50, they. this is what they do. And uh, we have variant texts that tell us 25. Um, so the rabbis try to harmonize that by saying, okay, at 25, they start training. And at 30, they're at full service. Okay, fine. So 20, they're in the, the and it's called Sava. It's called Sava. Exactly the same word for army. They are the force, right? They are the force, in this case, for uh, God and the Mishkan. Once they're 50... They're not relieved of their duties. At 50, they no longer do porterage. They no longer do the hard work of taking down, carrying, and putting up the mishkan. Instead, they do guard duty. Right? Because remember, the Levites take upon themselves the risk of encroachment on the sacred space. Right? It's the Levites who are responsible for encroachment. So once they are no longer schleppers... Uh, holy schleppers, they now become guards, that they um, stand watch so that they make sure no Israelite encroaches on the sacred site of the Mishkan. All right. They're only guards of the Mishkan, Mishkan not the community. Correct. Because they don't... There's, in this case, a separation of powers. And why would any Israelite want to Go on to the yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a good question, but presumably, right, we have folks who don't want to follow the rules. Um, I can't imagine among Jewish people that there would be people who didn't want to follow the rules. Um, it's a stretch, but let's just imagine in the biblical time, Jews might have not wanted well, to follow all the rules. The right, and so, and, and that's the other thing is, you know, that, that there might be folks like Nadav and Avi who are, who are filled with fervor, you know, who want very much to connect to the divine through those you know, means those rituals, those uh, behaviors, and it would be disastrous, right? Um, if if they did, um, so so the Levites do uh, guard duty after the age of fifty. All right, let's go to. So we've just had all of the the every nasi of each tribe comes and gives these gifts on behalf of their tribe to the mishkan. Then we have at verse 89, Moshe goes into the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, to speak with God and would hear the voice addressing him from above the cover that was on top of the Ark of the Pact between the two Kruvim. Thus did God speak with Moshe. So the voice comes to Moshe in the Ohel Moed from between the Kruvim on the Aron HaKodesh, on top of the Ark. Right. Immediately after that, we get Vaidaber Adonayel Moshe Lemor, our first verse, and God speaks to Moshe, saying, "Daber El Aharon, speak to Aharon, ve'amarta elav, and you'll say to him, 'Beha'alot cha'etanei rot el mu pnei ha'menorah, 
Ya'iru Shiv'at Hanerot, which is a tangled way of saying stuff, <laughs> right? When you lift up the wicks across from the face of the menorah that gives light, that these, these seven lights will give light. It's like, what? <laughs> so let's see how they deal with this in English. When you mount the lamps, let the seven lights at the, what does it say? Let the seven lamps give light at the front of the lampstand. It's very convoluted. Even in Hebrew, it's, it's convoluted. Because what does El Mul Paneha Menorah mean? In the front or, you know, against facing the menorah. What, aren't they on the menorah? Well, is this light in the uh, sense of learning as opposed to just candlelight? It, it doesn't seem to be metaphorical at all. I mean, it's an instruction, right, that what Aaron is supposed to do with the menorah. So it's very tangled, even in the Hebrew. Now, of course, that's going to be a open invitation for the tradition to go to some kind of, well, there's different kinds of lights, right? There's, um, so we're, we're actually going to look a little bit today at the menorah. What do we remember about the menorah? How is it to be crafted? If you want to cheat, it's Exodus 25:31. What do we know about the menorah? There's seven. There's seven. Seven they wrote. We know there's seven they wrote, and how many um, branches? Do you remember? Um, I should have had Judith Ubit come up here because this is this is going to be my usual beautiful work. Um, it's one piece, right? It's supposed to be one piece made of gold, pure gold. So we've got three arms, right? Giving us six branches. That's very well drawn. Yes, it is. Thank you. Where are they getting the gold? And they took it with them from, oh, from the Egyptians. Thank you. They borrowed it, remember? From the Egyptians as they left. They borrowed gold and silver, right? That was the weight they're carrying now. Yeah. Alright, so we've got, we've got the, a nair, we've got a wick in each of these thingies. Right? We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now, do we remember from Exodus what it, what it says about these, these lights? What's supposed to be with these lights? These Nairot? They are supposed to, they're supposed to lean, is one interpretation, towards the center. Right? That they're, because the light is supposed to shine towards the, Center is one interpretation because the Hebrews did it difficult. It's not clear what it means that, that, that this seems to suggest it's throwing light forward. So if it's throwing light forward, then the Nairot must be tipped this way. Right? Alright, so you can imagine the tradition is going to have a lot to say about 
why this design? Right? Like, of all things, why this design? And it is emblematic of the Jewish people and becomes emblematic of the Jewish people. I'm going to hand out to you earlier than I usually do. Stuff. Philo of Alexandria had a great uh, amount of detail when he talked about uh, imagery for the menorah. Philo, one of our earliest sources, right, believes that there's some there's symbolism here in the menorah. You're getting your papers passed around now. This is on page one. Go to your first highlighted section on the first page. He saw the menorah and vessels of the temple as representing the planets, the cyclic quality of life, and the concept of time. Right? So, so for, for Philo, the menorah and all of the vessels of the temple become the planets and the cyclic quality of life and the concept of time. So the menorah is going to be central. Thank you. I'm buying stock. <laughs> uh, is central to that. What did we just have happen right before this? We had, and the princes are coming and blah, 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 because what was happening with the Mishkan? What happened? Why are all these princes bringing gifts? They set up the Mishkan. So it's, it's its first, it's its maiden, it's an open house, right? Right, a new house. It's a it's a dedication of the Mishkan. So the Mishkan is finally like kind of put together. And what's the first commandment we get after that? After they bring all the gifts to, to end the ceremony of erecting the Mishkan, we get the commandment to light the menorah. So if the Mishkan, because Philo's not off, this is not new. What Philo was saying is not new. We've in past years when we were at the Mishkan, um, I didn't do it this year with you, but in years past, we've talked about the elements of creation that are present in the Mishkan. Right? That the Mishkan is a mini cosmos. At the center of the Israelite camp is a mini cosmos. And of course, God's presence fills that mini cosmos as God's presence fills the huger cosmos, right? The large cosmos. What is the first thing that happens after the establishment of of creation of the planet? Light. Light. So the rabbis say, well, of course, the first thing that's going to happen after the erection of the Mishkan and the dedication of the Mishkan, the first thing that needs to happen is, of course, Vayihi Or. So if we're dealing with cosmology, then we know that as soon as the, there's, you know, the waters parted from the land, then you need to have light. Okay. So that it's not an accident that we get the, it can look like it's just stuck here. Right? The rabbis ask why here? Like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We, you know, like all of a sudden, all this hoopla, all this ceremony, and it's like, tell Aharon to light the menorah. Then you're gonna consecrate the Levi. It's like, it feels like it's just kind of dropped in here, but that cannot possibly be, right? God forbid, we should say it's just dropped in here. So the rabbis start to explore what are some of the reasons that we might have the menorah here, and this is, right, to me, a pretty sound interpretation, that you've got the erection of the Mishkan, the Mishkan is the microcosm, it's going to reflect exactly what happens in the macrocosm, which is as soon as you have it established, you must have or light. Does the menorah have religious significance 
or is it utilitarian? I'm not sure what role. So the, the rabbis are very worried that someone might consider this utilitarian. They're very concerned about that. They write, we're going to see, they write a lot about that. Why are they worried about this being utilitarian? What's the concern? Well, it becomes trivial and not... So it's a tool then. It might not be quite as meaningful if it were utilitarian. It may reduce its significance. It's a better tool. But they're more nervous than that. More the worship. So... If it's gold and if you've got the menorah and it's light and you're using the light, what are you using the light for? for? So that that worries the rabbis. So think about it. Just think about it. Think about the. It's hard for us because we. It's just not a familiar set of um, references for us in our head. But think about the mishkan. You've got the mishkan, which is a tent, right? A big rectangular box inside a fence <clears throat> who goes in there the priest. the priest and mostly the priest's work is done by nighttime you're not offering sacrifices right you know, all that happened you know like evening like as evening was coming okay so as you you know as you were shifting into evening when we have Ma'ariv now, right? We have a we have a, a worship service every time we would have had a sacrifice in the temple. The last one is Ma'ariv. It's like right as evening is beginning. So for most of the night, they're not offering incense. They're not right. There's nothing happening. So what's what's the priest doing at night? Sleeping. <laughs> Sleeping. Like there's no the priest isn't doing anything at night. So who's in the Mishkan at night? And who's taking care of the light? That's right. God is in the Mishkan at night. Now what are the rabbis nervous about? If the menorah is utilitarian and only God is in the Mishkan at night, what is making the rabbis nervous? It might go out. Are you suggesting, God forbid, that God needs light? To see, right, that... You have to remember, they anthropomorphize their gods in the ancient Near East. So you're suggesting, look, if the gods eat and drink, why shouldn't they need light to read by? If you're going to anthropomorphize your god, it's very possible you might bring them a little snack in the middle of the night. They get hungry, right? So the suggestion is, if it's a utilitarian object and only god is in the Mishkan, then you're suggesting somehow, God forbid, that god needs a nightlight <laughs> to get around, like to get a cup of water in the middle of the night, right? Like that makes that makes the rabbis very, very nervous. That cannot be allowed to be the interpretation. And this is very early. It's very early that the rabbis get worried about this. Um, and so, so everyone goes to great pains to talk about how and why the menorah is a symbol. So that we make sure there's no way we're going to suggest that it is utilitarian, right? But is it religious? Is it? Is it? If it's not utilitarian, design, you know, you, if you wanted just to provide light, you can provide light with any number of tools to provide light. What besides fire? What? Yeah. What? No where do we elevate this to? 
It's, it's not. It's, if you want to house the Ten Commandments, you can build any kind of box. Yeah. What makes the Aron HaKodesh sacred is it is it is it's god's request that this is how it is designed i mean according to tradition this is god's request this is how it's going to be designed then it is consecrated it is consecrated and set aside for divine purposes so no there's nothing inherently sacred about the menorah until it is used as a religious object same with the kos kiddush if we have a kiddush cup it's a kiddush cup it's just a cup until we use it for kiddush, now it is kadosh. It is holy. It is, and of course, we hate that word. Like it's a, just not a weak word to use in English. It is set aside, right? It is off limits for anything else. Once you use it for kiddush, you can't use it to brush your teeth in the morning. You can't keep it by the bathroom sink. It is kadosh. You can't take something back from being kadosh. You can't unkadosh it. <laughs> Right? There's no undoing of that. So once it's designed, once it's made, once it is sanctified as, as a religious observance, it is now kadosh. Is this the first time we've heard about the menorah? It's not. Exodus 25.31 is the instruction to make the menorah and the detailed instruction of what it looked like. Having said that, it is very difficult for artists to render a menorah according to the instructions in Exodus. It's very confusing. Um, somebody like Judith would have to tell you more about why, because I'm not artistic at all. Um, it's hard for me to visualize when people describe things. It's hard for me to visualize them. Like, you have to show me. Um, and, but people who have that kind of mind, who can visualize easily from a description, have a very hard time figuring out how the menorah would have so worked exactly. Exodus, it has to be designed this way. Yes. Yes. So if the rabbis got together and said, we'd like to have two rabbis, <coughs> couldn't have. No, but, but remember, it, it's only in the Mishkan. The rabbis can't make a menorah. Because remember, once the, Mish, once the temple, because this was the menorah that was in the temple, once the temple's destroyed, we can't make anything that was in the temple. You're not allowed to mix anything close to the incense mix that we get here. Like when you see a lot of Christian things, they'll buy frankincense and myrrh, right? And you know, as a gift in Jerusalem, like Jews are like, no, 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 no. Right? Because if it's one of the combinations of, of things used in the Mishkan in the, later in the temple, we stay far away from that. We're not allowed to. Only the priests could do that when the temple stood, right? So there's a there's a taboo against making anything that would have happened in the Mishkan or the temple. So including the menorah, hundred percent. Oh no, we don't. Some of us. What's your point, Laura? Oh no, we don't. We do not have a menorah. No, we don't. What's that? We don't use that as a menorah. Oh, okay. So that that's utilitarian. We, we don't we don't have this ritual of menorah anymore. Oh, okay. What right. We, the ritual of how we light it. What do we light? A Hanukkah. We do not light a menorah. And on Shabbat we have the three, just the three. 
No. Right. So, right. So, you see how convoluted it has gotten, and so it's not. I'm not pointing to you, Judith, to say no, you're confused. No. We, we, no, you're you're not confused. I'm saying what I'm saying is you're not confused. You're Jewish. The these. Thank you. Which sometimes it's kind of the same thing. I'm just saying. Right? Oh, it's in Hebrew. Same difference. Um, because when we're Jewish, we have this idea of the menorah, and then we have the menorah, the Chanukiah, right? And they have somehow, we see this all the time. Because it's, but that's why you pointed to it on the wall. Why is it on the wall? Because it became a symbol of the Jewish people. And it became a symbol after the destruction of the temple. And that's why we really should call Hanukkah a Hanukkah. That's exactly right. That's why you hear some people say Hanukkah. Because technically, yes, it's a menorah. A menorah is anything that gives light, 100%. So I, w- I wasn't trying to say it's wrong that we light a menorah. I was pushing that it's not the menorah that we have from the Mishkan, from the temple. It's instead this, and we're going to look at, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at Hanukkah. Holiday workshop showing insistent we call it. A Hanukkah. This is why. Because God forbid we should in any way be suggesting that we're going, right, that we're doing menorah, we are doing Hanukkah with a Hanukkah which is made specifically for that holiday. I'm no longer confused. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still Jewish. I know you're still Jewish. That's not going to change. If you talk about Jewish symbol, symbols, if we talk about Christian symbols, it's a cross. A Jewish symbol, if you ask most people, they'd say the Star of David. They would never say the menorah. So you bring up a very good point. It's easier to draw. It's easier to draw a Jewish star than a menorah. I will attest to that. Is there anywhere? So we're going we're to go there, but, but so I'm looking for it in here. But we're going there. Yes. The description of the menorah in Exodus is quite complicated, and has anybody? Sculpted this, or you know? Yeah, yeah. The folks are kind of obsessed with replicating the Mishkan. Yes, have have really worked. You know, there are different versions, and you can look them up. Yeah. Um, I, I had I, you know, had it together a little more this week. I would have put together a presentation for you on the screen um, of different examples of how people render uh, the menorah. Um, you're seeing some of them here on your uh, article. Page two. So we're going to go to how it falls out of being a symbol, but let's stay with it was a symbol after the destruction of the temple. So on your second page, that second paragraph that's highlighted, the integrity of the of the menorah, despite its being divided into seven branches, has through the course of time evoked images of a body comprised of individual limbs or of a tree trunk whose trunk separates into its branches. So one of the ways it stays a, a powerful symbol for the rabbis is that it was supposed to be one piece. That's the other problem they have. How is this one piece of, of gold when you've got branches? And they had no solder. And, and if it's soldered, it's not one. Right. It's not of one piece. So, 
Go figure that. There's something called the lost wax system. But he, yeah, of, they of, did that. Of making a mold. Yeah. But that would have, gold been, would have been really hard to inject that the gold into that mold. Uh -huh. Would have been very difficult well, because yeah. the gold wouldn't go evenly into all the branches. Oh. There were skills. I love it. It's a technical <laughs> argument here about, well, it could have been a lost wax process. Well, no, that would have been very difficult. I love that. I love the level of, of knowledge in this group. So, so that's, that would be a great question. Like, how could they have made it out of one piece? Um, but the idea of that is that one piece having seven branches is appealing, right, to the rabbinic imagination. That it's like a body that has lots of limbs, but we're not compromised, we're not separate things because I have this hand and this hand and this foot. It's not a lot of different pieces put together. It, it all comes from one but seven place. But a body. No, I'm I'm but it's one, seven, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I've got like lots of, I've got lots of pieces okay. of me, and and then you got ears, and you got right, all kinds of appurtenances, um, and so I, I think that's what's appeal, partly appealing to the rabbis, or like a tree that has a trunk and then has branches. That it's this thing that there are lots of different. Parts of us as a people, as a nation, right? Um, there's lots of different kinds of us, but we are one. one. How about seven days? Ah, Rita, Rita, how can we possibly ignore that there are seven Nerot? We, we cannot ignore that. So, so then you would ask the question in Exodus, why is it designed this way? If the Mishkan is a microcosm, then, and you're going to talk about, or there's going to be lights, there's light for seven days. Right? The cycle is seven times of light, and then Shabbat is the seventh. And then you start at Yom Rishon, you start at number one. Yes? So of course the menorah has to have seven nerot because it's the microcosm of the universe. So we're talking about seven days. And you're talking about the seven days of creation because the seven days, of, the six days of creation and Shabbat, they're not separate. There's not the six days of creation and then that other thing hanging out there. The cycle is six days of creation and a day where God reflects and holds all that. God yinafashes, God reselfifies, right? And, um, and so it's the whole thing together makes the cycle. Beautiful. Absolutely has to be. The rabbis also love to to place on top of the... And I wish I'd brought it with me. It was a different handout. I could only do so many. Um, the rabbis locate... What are they going to locate here? They're going to superimpose onto the menorah. One, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine... 10. So do you see where I circled where the branch meets the, where the branch comes through the trunk? You know, through the stem, whatever, what do you call this? The base? The, what? What is this thing? That's the trunk. The stem. The stem, the trunk, you know, the middle it's, that's usually thing. That's a lot of areas besides trees. So the branches go, go, you know, they come across that base. So that's one, two, three intersections of the three branches with the stem. 
Then you have this ner, then you have the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven nerot. How many does that total? Ten. What is that going to be about? No. Ten. Oh, that would have been good. That's not where they go then. Ha ha Good. Woo, gold star for Rita today. This Firot. So in the Kabbalistic system, the Menorah is a representation of the Sfirot. The ten Sfirot, the ten emanations of God. And again, they're the ten emanations of God is what is the universe is based on. And if it, the universe is based on that, then... Of course, the Mishkan is, and of course, so are we. We are each a Mishkan, uh, Mishkan Me'at, a small sanctuary. We are also each a microcosm, I was say minicosm, a, a microcosm of the universe. So each of us contains all of the spherot. Right? And if you look, you often see this. You see, um, the, di- the diagram of the spherot being on a human body like and where the where the spherot are in the body because it has if it corresponds to the universe then it has to correspond to each one of us too has to it all works together, it all works together. and so we are all a reflection of right the universe and of god in the universe and of god's self so if god is 10 emanations of course we contain 10 emanations and of course so does the menorah the seven uh nerot and the three places that the branches meet the trunk so they have this wonderful um, system of again the menorah symbolizing their dominant in the time of Kabbalah that was their dominant understanding was the spherotic system is that part of gematria the numbers and the significance of numbers Um, there might be something in gematria related to the menorah I don't know I mean gematria would take the word menorah it would break it down into its letters it would add up how much each of the letters are mem is 50 nun is 60 um, vav is 6 you know so they would they would add them all together um, and then they would find other words that have that same numeric value that's how gematria works and so so if any other word has that same numerical value just using different combinations of of, of letters right but it in other words nun is 60 but you could have 15 15 and 30 equals 60 so there's millions of permutations of how you can get different words having the same n- numerical value in gematria but the rabbis for the rabbis in that system if it has the same numerical value there has to be connection. a connection <laughs> has to be so you can buy books that are essentially dictionaries that you look up a word and it gives you all the words that um, that have the same value in gematria and then there's midrash after midrash after midrash after midrash written about the connection between those words. I mean, you could spend a lifetime playing, and that was their that was their game. That was the rabbi's holy game, right? It was playing. That that was their. That's when you open. Well, let's do something. You know, like you take out a game and you put out all the pieces. That's for the rabbi what it was. We're going to take this word, menorah. We're, we're working with menorah today. Okay. So let's look at menorah. Let's look at its value in gematria. And now we're going to find all the other words that have that value. And then let's play. And let's see. Let's play. Sounds like fun. See? Linda, you could have been a rabbi. They didn't have cable. That's exactly right. They didn't have cable. And if you set as a value not engaging in secular learning... 
not engaging with secular activity, right? Like football, God forbid. Like you, if you're not doing anything like that, you're a yeshiva bucher. You, you have all this knowledge that is completely useless in the real world. It's only useful in the base midrash, right? And so it was their fun. It was their game. They, they could use what they had. They could use what they knew. It was a sanctified activity. And it was a way they could play. We, we often, I, I was taught in rabbinical school, we often take this stuff way too seriously. Like, we're like, wait, what do they mean? And what is it? And a lot of times... Scrabble. It's Scrabble. <laughs> That's, it's, it's, it's sacred Scrabble. That's exactly right. They're playing. They're having fun. They're being clever. Right? They're thinking, like, watch this. Watch this. All right. Right? And look, here we go. Menorah. Right? Connect. And... And they wind up at this other place and everybody's like, I get it! The Joseph story! That's awesome! Right? And, and they're being clever uh, and playful. And we often miss that. We, it took my teachers lifting up, do you get it? Like, this is tongue-in-cheek. They're having fun here. Lighten up, class. Lighten up. Like, and So I try always to remember as I'm looking at some of these texts, like, trying hard to understand what do they mean what do they mean what do they mean sometimes I'm like okay wait a minute what if I just read it as sacred scrabble what if they're just playing then what what's the clever you know what are they pleased with themselves about that they wrote it down (laughs) right after the destruction of the temple the motif of the menorah became an extremely widespread and central figure in Jewish art Sheldon Widespread. Everywhere. It was everywhere. Drop to the bottom of that uh, paragraph. The form of the, the menorah was depicted in synagogues, on the gates and portals, and was incorporated in designs on mosaic floors, clay lamps, glass cups, and bracelets. We see it like all over the place, the menorah, as, um, as a symbol. Isn't it a symbol of Israel? Hang on, hang on. The form of the menorah has also been discovered hewed into rock and stone. It was equally prevalent in Israel and the diaspora. It was a universal symbol of the Jewish people after the destruction of the temple. Um, and it's interesting to think about why. Right? Why did it persist? Like, why wasn't it the kruvim on top of the ark? Why wasn't it, you know, why wasn't it the showbread? Why wasn't it the incense altar? Why? The menorah. I mean, I think for lots of the reasons we've discussed, it lends itself to the superimposing of other systems of symbol, you know, of symbolology. That's not a word, is it? Um, symbology. Oh, good. So other, yay. So other systems. Every now and then, I get lucky. Um, <laughs> other systems of symbology, right, can be superimposed on the menorah in a way that you can't do with the incense altar. Right? If you're looking for a symbol, once the temple's destroyed of the temple, we get, I mean, it makes sense in a way, doesn't it, that it's the menorah? Sure. That's that symbol? It's light. It's, it's, light. it's light. like, we love that. We love, cause light is so, it's such an easy metaphor to work it's with. Light. It's not dark, it's light, right? So, uh, it makes sense. And, I think, you know, sacrifice, what you, right? <laughs> have a big knife. Right? Like, uh, right? Like what? It's not gonna work. Well, I guess in other traditions, you know, it actually did. But for us, that was, that wasn't, you know, a powerful symbol, particularly since we'd moved on. Because we have to remember how, what remains a symbol of the Jewish people after the destruction of the temple has to coincide with what the Jewish people are doing now. 
Yes? Um, and so the other one, what's the other one from the temple that has remained a powerful symbol of the Jewish people? Shofar? Uh, Shofar was not part of um, temple worship. This is the Ner Tamid. The menorah is the Ner Tamid. I think the Ten Commandments is another one. That you know, this symbol of the two tablets has been a symbol that remains associated with the Jewish people as like, oh, that's Jewish. Um, right? We're, we're, I'm talking temple. That's all I'm talking. I'm not talking Star of David. Right? I'm talking from temple ritual. This was in the Ark, right? And, and I think it remains a powerful symbol of the Jewish people because it was still what the Jewish people were about. They were studying Torah. And for them, this emblem symbolizes the Torah received at Sinai. Right? I mean, even though it's a small portion of it, for, for us, that's the symbol of receiving Torah, right? Of revelation. And so it stays a relevant symbol, but not, it doesn't seem to me as powerful as the Minorah. And from the archaeological record, Minorah is everywhere. In the diaspora, in Israel, it continues. It's everywhere. Yeah? They didn't found it in Jewish tombs in 4th century Rome, inside dark tombs. There you go. Inside tombs, fourth century room, right? It's it's everywhere, on bracelets, right? On everything. To make it even more holy, many sculptures say they get the block of gold in this case, and they say it was always in there. We're just throwing away the waste, and it was in there because right about carving, right. Yeah, but it was always, no, they, yeah, they just throw away the waste. Right. So I don't know how you do that with gold. I don't know how you carve something out of gold. Uh, so that was the discussion they were having about how you do that. I don't know how you take a piece of gold and carve it. I don't know that you can do that. I know, but if you don't, he's talking about removing the waste and throwing away. You don't do that if you're molding. You, you melt the whole thing and mold the whole thing. You're saying carving... I don't know how you carve gold. And, and sculptures, at least one sculpture, I don't know if he said it, he said it's always in there. Because the Lord put it there. Right, but you, you, well, all I'm saying is you can't do that with gold. Why? You, you can't take a big hunk of solid gold and just carve out hunks and take them out. I don't know. Ask Judith and uh, Elena. They know. Hang on. Laura's... It was a representation. Yeah. There, well, you didn't have. No, God forbid. You couldn't actually make a menorah because that would be replicating. No. You would never have an object that was mimicking something, God forbid, that happened in the temple. Um, all right. So then it falls out of use as the symbol, it falls out of popularity as the Jewish symbol. What, what do we see in, think more recent memory, if it, and I'm not, I'm talking pre-48. 
What is the symbol of the Jewish people when we think the symbol of the Jewish people? Somebody said it earlier. The Star of David. So the Star of David gains popularity. It becomes one of the predominant symbols of the Jewish people, as does the, it's an animal, the lion. The lion of Judah becomes also emblematic of the Jewish people. I think that the Star of David first it's first depicted in a 14th century manuscript. So it's much, much later. Yes. Yes. And actually it comes to us, I think, from India. So it's... But it's called the Star of David. Yeah. No. No. I hate bursting people's bubbles in this room. I hate that. Um, <laughs> Leah loves it. Susan is having a heart attack. She's like, she's like crying over here. Um, it's so there was a there was something on the shield of David, right? So this that we know as that star is retrojected onto Magain David. That is the Magain of David, Hamelech, but it is. Uh, no, not Jewishly. The Hamsa is a uh, ancient Near Eastern sign of protection. It is a warding of the evil eye, um, and you have an eye drawn in the middle of a hand, uh, and across the ancient Near East, and it remains a symbol across the Middle East. It is not a Jewish symbol. It was a universally understood symbol of warding, of warding off the evil eye. What's this? By, by lots of traditions in the ancient world. So this, yeah. the splitting the Spock, right? So Leonard Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy got this, of course, from, from Jewish tradition. Uh, so this is the position of the hands that the Kohanim, the priests, were to put their hands in as they blessed the people. And only, I'm like, I'm not even supposed to be doing it. The way I was raised, like, you know, you're not allowed to do that. Only the priests could do this. Um, and they spread their hands over the people, and they still do it when they are duchanin in traditional synagogues. Um, on the festivals, they still do this, and they raise their hands over the people to bless the people. Why this hand position? Uh, the only one that I know that make that I buy at all, and not that I know a lot of them, um, but the only one I buy at all is it represents the cloven hoof of the animals that were permitted to eat, so that you know, staying within what's permitted and what's forbidden, you know, that um, that this is a symbol probably left over from when gods were animals, right? If you think about Egypt, you think about India. Um, India. You think about other places where, you know, even in Ezekiel's vision, you know, you've got, so animals and gods were related. Probably a lot of the animals that we see represented on the flags of the tribes relate to earlier Canaanite, you know, gods. Um, and so, or, or protective, you know, your totem was your protective animal, but in a kind of mythic Right, mystical way, and um, I've just lost my train of thought. So probably something about that cloven hoof having been something about the god um, back when, like way earlier in, in our Canaanite past. You know, it's possibly a leftover um, from that. Pagan symbols when they were converting people. Right, and we think we're different. Right, often we think as Jews. 
We're different. The Christians, well, they took the tree from the pagans and they made it a Christmas tree. But we know it wasn't about Christ's mass. We know it was about the pagan festival of spring, right? Well, we are exactly the same as any other religion or any other people that has ever graced the planet. We did exactly the same thing with the Canaanite rituals. We reconstructed them, right? They do a coronation of the king in the fall. So do we. We took that from the pagans. We took that from Babylonia. And now it's Rosh Hashanah. And all that liturgy about crowning God as king is reconstructing our pagan past. So is Pesach, right? The lambing festival, the new grain, all of it is pagan. All of it. And if, you, if you're interested in this, which I am, I'm very interested in this. Unlike some people, I don't think it devalues our tradition at all. I find that it deepens my understanding. Just, just as I say to Christians, if you really want to understand your holidays, you need to understand the Jewish holidays that yours is a reconstruction of. Or you don't get the full Pentecost. You don't understand Pentecost for nothing if you don't understand the God coming down on the mountain on Shavuot. You, you don't understand Pentecost, like the receiving of the holy tongue. You don't understand that until you understand that it was Jews who took that and made it their new Christian understanding. Then you get, oh, okay. Right? It, it deepens. And it, it deepens it. And so for me, it, 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 deep, it deepens it for me and then it, it connects it to nature, to the natural world, to how people have been doing things forever. And I love that we have a reconstruction of it. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't want to be pagan. Like, I'm glad that we have, that we, you know, that we, we evolved. I'm not going to say they're not evolved, but we evolved in a certain direction to have this invisible monotheistic blah, 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 blah. I like that, right? But I also love that we can connect it back to to roots that go very, very deep. And even when we say pagan, we're talking about something less important than what we do. We tend to think that, right? Yes. And as somebody who's drawn to anthropology, I'm always just like, we're all the friggin' same. Like, we're all the same. We have the same impulses, the same mishigas, the same desires, the same fears. We're all the same. And I just think it's fascinating that we all are the same and we come up with these beautifully different ways of expressing it. In, uh, artifacts from every culture mm-hmm. they're all the same they, they value children, families, safety health well, this is what anthropologists call terrestrial human culture THC there are things you know you have specific cultures uh, cultural anthropologists go to something called THC which is there, there is a culture that is for all of terrestrial humans there could be humans other places, but for terrestrial humans, um, there is a culture, and there are elements of that culture. Every human culture has certain elements. Every single one that's ever existed. They, about burying dead, or not burying, but about dealing with the dead, about marriage, about adolescence, about birth. There's certain things that the rights are all different, but but every human culture ever has certain <laughs> features that are in common. All right, I want to move on. So the menorah has symbolized the destroyed temple, bottom of your page, Jerusalem, and the hope of redemption, so that its cosmic associations tied in with its historical and national symbolism. It became a multifaceted symbol rich in messianic significance 
and any abstract skeletal drawing of it sufficed to evoke its symbolic associations. So the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the hope for redemption of that is all represented by the, um, by the menorah and its cosmic associations tied in with its historic and national symbolism. So it becomes a loaded, a very loaded uh, symbol. And therefore, uh, that should have set you up, Rita. But uh, Sheldon, I want you to go to the next page and look where it says, in recent centuries, we've been witness to ups and downs in the prevalence of the menorah as a symbol. Second paragraph of that next page. During the emancipation, it even lost its place in synagogues and decorations of the ark. Right? The enlightenment and the emancipation were not good for the menorah. Why? Given what we just said. Symbolized the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the hope for redemption, at times messianic hope. Why in the enlightenment and emancipation would it have declined as a popular symbol? It's not needed. Because? They found the light. Exactly. We human beings have come to enlightenment. We don't need that mumbo-jumbo, messiah garbage. We've come through science, through the age of reason, capital R. We don't need that junk anymore. We are enlightened. We now understand. We will use reason and logic to get to whatever we need to know. We don't need all that hope for redemption. Redemption for what? We're, we're, we're redeemed. Like we're, who, That even language is like, get rid of that, right? So absolutely, so it declines in popularity. I felt that in part of the reform movement for a while in the early days. Sure. When they just got rid of everything. Because it's a product of the Age of Reason, capital R, and they they were very committed to the ideas of the Enlightenment. And and later is the you know Enlightenment, right? And so and we've gone through again. And so the. And so they got rid of all those symbols. They got rid of all the things that had to do with any of that mumbo-jumbo that they called, quote, superstition, right? So um, so we go down to the next paragraph. In the 19th century, the menorah went into eclipse as a key Jewish symbol in Central and Western Europe. So, Sheldon, your instincts were absolutely right. It was all over the ancient world, but in the times that we really remember of what we see visually, it had gone into eclipse. However, with the reawakening, Rita, of Jewish nationalism, the seven-branch menorah reemerged this time as a Zionist symbol. So the very thing that fell away during the Enlightenment and the um, emancipation with Zionism now, that's the perfect symbol. We're not going to rely on God for redemption and we're not going to rely on the Messiah forget that but it becomes a symbol of we will rebuild the state of Israel the Jerusalem that right we will we have hope for a rebuilding of Jerusalem by the Jewish people and so the menorah becomes the symbol of of this hope and of Zionism and since 48 it has served as the emblem of the state of Israel, a heraldic symbol of formal representational character, whatever that means. But they found it easier to put a Star of David on the flag you could draw it easier there too. Or you have a seal and then you have another symbol, like we don't have stars and stripes on the 
as the seal, that's the flag, right? It's a different idea. The menorah, which appears on the emblem of the state of Israel, was copied from the relief carved into the Arch of Titus in Rome, where it had once stood for the suppression of the Jewish revolt. This is the other reason it becomes the symbol of the state of Israel is because the menorah that we know of the one that the only representation that we have of you know of like of actual someone looking at it and representing it is the arch of Titus what what happens on the arch of Titus the Jews are being carried away. It's, the, all of the temple's being looted, and it's a picture of them carrying everything out of the temple, the Roman soldiers, and on one of their shoulders is the big seven-branched menorah. That is the representation that the state of Israel used as its state emblem. <laughs> Laura just showed us the middle finger, right? To say, you know, it's been a symbol of the suppression of the Jewish people, the destruction of the Jewish people, the destruction of the land of Israel, the, the Jewish autonomy in the Holy Land, of Jerusalem, of the Holy Temple, of everything sacred to us. It's been the sign that we lost it and of our oppression in the diaspora, blah, 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 blah. And now it becomes, therefore, the symbol of Hatim the symbol of hope and we're not just going to hope we're going to do it and now not only hope and hope to do it we've done it we did it the Jewish people did it with the help of many many allies and but we <laughs> we did it and so you can see how from ancient times until now see now hopefully when you see it when the you know prime minister speaks and you see that menorah Right, well, ha- you have a deeper appreciation and understanding for how how it got there and what it actually means, and it is. It's this to the world every time the every time the leader of the state of Israel, any dignitary of the state of Israel, stands behind that state emblem. It's a way to say, okay, yeah, once, but never again, never again. Once, yeah, but that became the symbol, just like Masada, the mass, you know murder or death or whatever at Masada becomes the symbol Dafka, of where the soldiers go to say you know we are and that's where they are dedicated that's where the soldiers are whatever you call it the ceremony for making them soldiers um, official alright we don't have time um, but if you if you go to your first I put together a source sheet for you you know on my new favorite toy yes. Sepharia um, so I made you a sheet um and I'll just bri- you you read it at home, but I'll just briefly tell you what it's about. The question, because they always start with a question. There's a kasha. There's a difficulty. What's the kasha here? When you kindle the lights, etc. The day on which the tabernacle was erected was comparable in the day on which the universe was created. That's why we have to have right light. Fine. The reason why the paragraph dealing with the killing of the menorah was placed immediately after the paragraph describing the gifts of the princes, because it could have been right after the erection of the Mishkan. It didn't have to be right after the gifts. Why is it after the gifts? I told you that's a long history of what they play with that question. It's as Rashi has pointed out already, that Aaron had been upset that he had apparently not been given a role in those rituals. In order to set his mind at rest, God told Aaron that God had reserved a more important role for him even than the princes, which is specifically the kindling of the menorah. 
But Nachmanides questions Rashi's comments, asking, why would God console Aaron with the kindling of the light when God could so easily point it out to Aaron that since he'd been chosen for presenting the most welcome of the offerings, the incense, surely he must have realized that he had not been overlooked. Meaning, if you're going to go to, this is a consolation for Aaron, that this is the more important. But the incense is the more desirable thing than like lighting some lights. And Aaron's the only one who can offer the incense. So it doesn't really work as an answer. But we're Jews. We don't stop there. There's gonna, well, here comes the argument. So there's a long list of sacrifices that are acceptable to God, only if offered by Aaron. So again, the sacrifices, surely that's a bigger deal than a flipping menorah. We must therefore try to understand the allegorical explanation quoted by Rashi in the name of the Midrash Tanhuma as referring to... I promised I would get back to you, Judith. To the Hasmoneans... In the distant future, Aaron's descendants consecrating the entire temple anew by lighting the menorah with oil that had been miraculously blessed by God so that it burned for longer than expected, eight days instead of one. Whereas on this special occasion, the inauguration of the Mishkan were performed by members of the other tribes, not including the kindling of the lights on that occasion. But in the distant future, the kindling of the lights would become the central feature in the whole rededication of the temple to the service of God. Right? So it's going to be the whole big deal in the new temple is this whole eight-day business, and then there's a whole miracle that happens with the oil. So it's it's not that menorah. Now, of course, that was a piddly, whatever. It's not as good as the sacrifices. But it was that it was going to be in the future that Aharon's descendants are going to light the menorah that becomes the whole dedication focus, a miracle focus. And not only that, the temple. So as long as there is a the, as long as there's a temple, you can light the menorahs. But it's not even going to be that because, as we said earlier, this lighting of the Hanukkah is going to go on past the destruction even of the temple. It is enduring in nature. Seeing that we commemorate that event, the annual eight day celebration of Hanukkah, and the kindling of the lights every evening. Still nowadays, long after the temple has been destroyed and there is no longer an altar on which to offer animal sacrifices, so it is clear, therefore, that the consecration of the tabernacle was of subordinate significance when measured against the millennia of Jewish history. So it's... So it's saying, this menorah, okay, lovely, whatever, distant past, whatever, but the real... The real thing of Menorah is that it became this miraculous thing in the Hasmonean temple, and even after that temple was destroyed, we still light the Hanukkah. So who says Hanukkah is a minor holiday? So, who, so now, this is one of those, I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing we teach in Hanukkah for grown-ups, right? <laughs> like, um, that it actually, it is a beautiful thing that, so as I said earlier, it is not a Menorah, and it is the Menorah carried forward in our reminiscence on the miracle of lighting the menorah in the Hasmonean temple and in that sense uh, it connects all the way back and for us and for me at Hanukkah time when we light that Hanukkah it is in fact lighting the flame that is is what this one is based on the light of creation the light of learning the light of hope the light of Torah the light of everything because of the universe everything that this one would have represented that's exactly of course 
what happens for us when we light the Hanukkah. May we, as we light it this year, do so with added kavanah, with added intention, uh, to be agents of bringing that light into this world. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.